the Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students. Welcome back to another episode of Raising the Bar. Today we are welcoming back a former podcast host, Alana Hughes, who is now a tenant at Harcourt Family Law Chambers. How are you, Alana? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me back. No worries. It's great to be able to talk to someone who's done the whole process and has been on the show throughout the process. Um, Last time we spoke to you was whilst you were doing your second sixth, I think. Yes, that's right. I think it was just a few months ago when I was coming to the end of my pupillage. That's right. Amazing. And how have you been finding tenancy? Well, it's been very busy. And I think for any family law practitioner, this time of year is always a particularly busy time of year because we're coming up to Christmas and you tend to find that, you know, judges and barristers alike are planning to take some time off, we hope, at Christmas. So lots of things need to be done and sorted out before then. And the local authorities and Kafkas's offices tend to shut down over the Christmas break. So deadlines are tight and obviously contact issues for children at Christmas are always an area of tension between parents who have separated. So that brings an entirely new element to cases whereby contact has been progressing all year fine. And then we get to Christmas and we can't decide who gets to wake up uh, on Christmas morning with the children and um, enjoy the Santa experience. And that's a very common feature in, in separation cases at this time of year. So it's busy. Oh my gosh, I could imagine Christmas must be an awful time for some families and if it wasn't busy enough and hectic enough this year with COVID and everything and all the uncertainty that's going to bring, it doesn't help if you're going through family law proceedings as well. I was thinking yesterday, um, I was looking into the recent case of the little boy who was Mm. awfully murdered and had an awful time in the months leading up to his death and I did actually want to ask you about how you found working with such difficult cases um I know there was a comment in the past few days saying if there's any hint or kind of any any suggestion of any form of child abuse they should be taken away from their parents immediately but as someone who's working in family law and really getting into these cases recently I would love it if you'd be able to kind of tell us a bit more about what that actually means. And as a as a family law student, I know the ins and outs a little bit of separation orders and the the standard of what needs to be attained. But if you could tell us a bit more about what a separation order actually is and how that comes about, I think that'd be really interesting. Well, I think the first thing that has struck me personally in terms of the media reporting of this particular case is how frenzied as a society we we have been over the past week and rightly so over the horrific details of this particular case and when the media widely publicizes cases it often generates a lot of commentary online and lots of people share their opinions and that can mean many things but it it certainly can mean that types of narratives spread and those narratives may not be exactly correct and what you've referenced in terms of the comments online about how as soon as we have any hint of child abuse in cases children should be removed from their families it is not necessarily the, the legal test at all that applies in these sorts of cases the legal test is significant harm and 
that is physical, emotional, psychological harm, harm in any form, essentially. But the legal test for immediate removal of a child from the care of its parents is that their well-being and their safety, their immediate safety, demands it. And these cases have to go to court and a judge has to review the facts and hear submissions from all of the lawyers representing each of the parties. You'll normally have the local authority who make the application, the parents, the mother and the father, if both are present in the child's life. And the child themselves will be represented by a children's guardian who also has a barrister at court. And sometimes the judge will even hear evidence at a very early interim stage in these proceedings about what has happened, what is alleged to have happened. And the judge has to decide whether or not the child's safety demands that it's removed from its parents. And often where there has been harm, uh, it's not a case where immediate safety demands removal. And so children can either stay in their parents' care at home perhaps or they may be placed within uh, what we tend to refer to as a mother and baby foster placement or a mother and baby residential unit where they'll be further assessed but it's certainly not the case that from the beginning if there's harm uh, albeit the test is significant harm that that will determine and 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 inevitably mean removal they're, they're two separate tests so uh, I think the legal issues behind this sorts of this sort of case and the sorts of cases that I do um all the time are it's necessary to apply them very carefully to the facts of each individual case you can't look at these issues with a broad brush approach and I think that's important to remember when we look at the media reporting of this case in particular because this was a criminal trial these were criminal charges but of course family law proceedings take place in private and they're not reported on by the media. The details are not given to the media and it's not something um, that the wider public are, are often uh, privy to. So I think when we when we look at these cases, we, we have to remember that and we have to remember that after all, a highly qualified judge has heard evidence and heard submissions from professionals and from lawyers on the issues and they have applied the law, which is very clear, uh, to the individual facts of cases and that means that often uh, the results in certain cases can be different and we can't we can't just approach this uh, with, with one view. Definitely and I think like in this case with Arthur it didn't even reach the stage of family courts they were saying the, the there was intervention but it didn't reach the the courts themselves the family court did not get involved. Um, but do you think there's a risk, um, particularly with what you were saying earlier, with kind of Christmas chaos in the family law world, that with COVID as well, that there are going to be increasing cases coming out of significant harm, of things that should really not have happened, um, but have happened due to the lockdown? And do you think there is a, a real risk that we are going to see more cases like this? Well, we're into our second year of COVID now and I I don't know the statistics and I don't know even if there has been a research report generated on this issue. But what I would say is that it's it makes sense that taking children out of school and keeping them at home all day with their parents and taking children 
out of that sort of safety network that school can often provide because many referrals that are made into the local authority in terms of safeguarding concerns about children come from teachers and responsible adults who identify or or notice those concerns in school and then that's how the children get reported and the the system of, of safeguarding children commences so when we take children out of school they lose uh that element of protection and and safeguarding that is often very important. And on top of that, you also have the issues that have stemmed regarding domestic abuse because we are spending a lot more time in the home. We're not going to work to the office as we, we normally used to do. And therefore, domestic abuse and any sort of physical signs of domestic abuse can go undetected for for quite a long time because we're not socialised and and that's not getting picked up by by people in our support networks around us. So I think I, I, I can't speak to whether or not that has manifested itself in the the number and volume of cases that we have. I don't know if there is a report that exists on this issue, but I would say that those two things strike me as reasons why we have actually seen a rise, I expect, in family cases because safeguarding measures have been removed and the the normal ways that we would go about detecting concerns in society haven't happened over the past two years because we have been confined to our homes and our immediate families for, for long periods of time in ways that we haven't been before. That makes a, a lot of sense. And I want to go into family law. So these things really do interest me. Um, and I think the work is so important to kind of help families through the fallout of all these different um, social experiences that we're going through um, with lockdown and tackling different things. Um, but I do want to, I'm aware that I'm asking a lot of questions that I, I didn't warn you about. Um, but I did want to touch on something that you, you mentioned earlier about how the family courts are private. And I was watching a documentary that was kind of talking about the family courts and transparency and the issues surrounding that. Do you think there is an issue? And do you think that the family courts ought to be more transparent so that there can be greater accountability? I think this is a very difficult question because when I think of times that I have represented, particularly parents who are subject to applications made by local authorities and reports have been written within the papers that detail and outline the very, very intimate details of their lives and perhaps their wrongdoings. And times when I have represented both alleged victims and alleged perpetrators of domestic abuse and the details that there are available within the papers as to the experiences of both persons' lives and and what has been alleged, I think it would be very difficult to imagine that those details would be accessible to anyone other than professionals who are bound by very strict codes of conduct in terms of confidentiality and what we can and can't do with the information that we have on file in relation to these cases. So the first thing that springs to my mind when you asked me this question was a few weeks ago a a care case that I was involved in and uh, one of the other council representing another party on the case had a many people um, with them. And ordinarily, you do need the court's permission for a many people to be present. And that is often what the court would often take into account is whether or not 
particularly the parents in a care case consent to that person being present and in this particular case the parent one of the parents didn't consent and whilst that's obviously difficult in the sense that the many people needs to get the experience they need to see these sorts of cases in order to know whether or not this is the kind of work that they want to do on the other hand I understand why someone wouldn't want someone who's not bound to the ethical code who's not yet a barrister um, to come along and to see and hear everything about their lives in in the detail in which we, we deal with it and so that's just a very small example of outside intrusion if we put it that way into the family courts and many pupils are a very necessary part of of the, the process because you've, you've got to be able to see it to know whether or not you want to do it that's the bottom line but even that example shows the reluctance that that these parents may have and individuals may have in family court proceedings to have those details shared and I know from the files that I read and the files that I prepare exactly why people wouldn't want these details available because when you think about it your family life is the most private aspect of your life and not something that you should share unless voluntarily um, with others with the public with the media um, and even in other aspects of your own life so there's probably a lot of work that would need to go into any decision about whether or not we should change the rules about the private nature of family proceedings but for the time being I certainly can appreciate why it is that these proceedings remain private and it's ultimately for the protection of the child who's subject to the proceedings and also then for the protection of the individuals who are perhaps the parents or carers and details that we just shouldn't have open to public knowledge about their lives and very private, private aspects of their lives. Definitely, it's it's a tricky balance, I guess, to to ensure that the child's welfare is paramount. That's what it's supposed to be and to ensure that. And I think what is so important that you mentioned was that there is an ethical code. And I think there is sometimes some form of impression that barristers all tell each other everything that's going on and kind of everyone knows that everything and that there is corruption and judges making awful comments. At least the documentary I watched kind of gave that impression, which obviously is awful if that is happening but I think it's important to have some context and understand that that is hopefully and definitely the the minority and that most barristers do follow the strict code of ethics and there is a body to ensure that it is followed so I think yeah you're you're definitely right to re-emphasize that point on making tenancy is there a difference between pupillage? I know a lot of people refer to the pupillage year as a year-long interview. Do you feel like the, the stress of being a pupil is ended or is it just as chaotic as it was before? It's definitely just as chaotic. I do think that there is a difference though because your place in chambers is cemented. You are a full member of chambers. You're, um, you're paying your clerk's fees. You, you have your spot and nobody can really take that off of you once it's been given to you. So that's a nice security to have yeah exactly it's it's just the security of that because your pupillage year until you find out whether or not you've got tenancy is 
very insecure in the sense that you're questioning yourself and your ability constantly uh, whilst everyone else around you is questioning questioning your ability too and making assessments of your ability and whether or not you should be given tenancy and then of course when you are offered tenancy at least my tenancy was subject then to successful completion of the 12-month pupillage so I found out that I was being offered tenancy in July but my pupillage year didn't end until the end of September so I then had about 10 or 11 weeks where I had to then finish my pupillage and, and make sure that I did so successfully in order for that tenancy order to, to stand tenancy offer sorry to stand so certainly there are differences in that sense but ultimately I went to bed on a Thursday night as a pupil and I woke up on a Friday morning as a tenant and nothing really other than that changed. I was very excited when my uh, email signature changed from pupil barrister to barrister. But then within <laughs> about two or three weeks, I retracted my excitement about that because I realised that often opponents and perhaps judges, they note the word pupil in front of barrister in your email signature, not necessarily that they would ever favour you in any way or or treat you any differently but I certainly feel as though they note the stage of your career that you're at when it's so clearly portrayed on your email signature and can perhaps give you some assistance where you might need it uh, if it be in your submissions or, or queries that you might have about procedural issues and um, things like that and when you lose that pupil words in your email signature and you're just like everyone else you're a barrister that means that on paper to a court or to an opponent you are just as experienced as they are you could have been called in 1975 or you could have been called in 2009 and 2019 and there's no difference uh you're you're a barrister so I find that that is um, a strange feeling because I don't yet feel Certainly, it's been a strange sort of few weeks for me to try get to try to get used to the fact that I'm not a pupil anymore, and that's a that's a transition uh, that we all have to go through. And you certainly don't feel as experienced as the other members of the bar that you come up against when you look at their profiles on their chambers website and find out that they were called before you were born, <laughs> um, and that's not demonstrated at all in your email signatures you're on an even playing field um, and it doesn't feel like an even playing field so it's it's all very bizarre and it's a it's a very strange process as is the entire process to become a barrister as you know very strange conventions very bizarre things that we lo loopholes that we have to jump through and uh, the transition from pupillage to tenancy is just another one of those Oh gosh, I mean, I find that partly reassuring in that when I hopefully obtain pupillage, knowing that someone will see pupil and take that into consideration, that's a reassuring thought. But I can imagine that is definitely very daunting. But as you knew that you were going to make tenancy, I guess maybe you didn't have that element of competition that sometimes exists between pupils or was that beforehand? I, I didn't ever have the element of competition and uh, I was very grateful not to have that because I think that can possibly be quite toxic in certain situations whereby you need to just focus on yourself and you need to focus on making sure that you do the things that you have to do to, to make the mark rather than worrying about someone else. But my chambers made it very clear from day one that myself and my co-people were not in competition with one another. Uh, very clear. 
and it didn't ever feel as if we were being compared or that we were in competition and I I don't know to what extent being remote assisted with that in that if we weren't remote perhaps we would have been in chambers early in the morning and late in the evening together working on pieces of work for other members and possibly comparing the level of work that we were doing or the type of tasks that we were being assigned and drawing inferences from that one way or another and because that wasn't the case and and we were remote pretty much the entirety of our pupillage we often just checked in with each other of a Friday evening to see how our week went and in a large part our pupillage followed a very similar trajectory and I would go so far as to say in a large part even our early days of tenancy has followed a similar trajectory and we're both extremely busy so thankfully I can really truly say that I didn't feel that competition and I really don't know to what extent that competition is enjoyable for others who do and I know that that competition does exist in other chambers but it depends on the chambers and it depends on the ethos of chambers and and really what what chambers are about and I think that's why pupillage interviews are important because you can get a sense of of that I think from those interviews and from the types of characters that you meet and you can make a decision as to whether or not you feel as though that chambers is somewhere where where you want to be. Yeah it must have been nice having kind of a companion to go through exactly the same thing that you were going through at the same time and have that person to kind of be able to confide in. Um, I know that I think there's a a definite conception of the bar being very competitive, that law students are very competitive. But so far I found that as the higher up I've kind of gone, the more supportive people are and the more willing people are to give you advice and to invite you along to moots and have kind of a, a little chat to make sure that you're okay and getting on okay. Is that what you found? Um, I'm guessing that as you've stayed on and at your chambers, you do find it to be a supportive environment, but have, have you found that as you've gone along in your, your career? Oh, certainly. I mean, I mean, I think the BPTC, as it then was when I, when I did it in 2018, 2019, that, that course was particularly competitive because everyone is trying to get the same results in exams. Everyone is trying to get pupillage. And that necessarily leads to an environment of competition. So I did find that particular aspect of training to become a barrister competitive and parts of that were difficult. My law degree, perhaps not so much because at that stage, everybody was not working towards the same goal as in everybody obviously wanted to get their degree but some people wanted to be solicitors some people wanted to be barristers and then some people had no intention to be lawyers at all and they possibly knew that when they come into a law degree but they just wanted to get that degree to to give them a, a solid base to go off and explore the civil service or banking or finance or whatever it may be but by the time you get to BPTC and the bar course, everyone does have the same goal in mind. And I think that that did make a, comp- a competitive environment. When I became a pupil then, uh, you know, as I've mentioned, that wasn't a competitive environment for me, but it, but it could well be for others. It, it depends. And now that I am a tenant, I've got my co-pupil who is the same level as me. And then in pairs, essentially, a pair of barristers at every level of call above me then um, right up until the 1970s and everybody supports everybody else we've got group chats we've got 
Chambers Tea where we hop on to Zoom once a week and check in with everybody. We've got an email thread with every member of Chambers on it and questions are fired on to that. You know, has anyone ever heard of this? Has anyone ever come across this? What's what's advice on this? And that's so important because you're self-employed and you spend a lot of time alone. And you've got to have people that you can turn to because you cannot be expected to know everything. And every day really is a learning curve. And obviously the training, the formal training ends, but the learning doesn't stop. So you've you've got to have people above you who are able to steer and guide you. And, and I certainly have found that to be the case in my chambers. Uh, so the collegiate aspect of being a barrister is true and it's a very positive aspect of the job. That sounds really nice that you have that kind of support network around you, um, especially I can imagine with COVID training during lockdown and working from home, it's even more isolating than perhaps it would be. But I think in general, wellness at the bar has been increasing. I know my course provider, I'm doing the bar course with the ICCA. There's like a a little section about wellness at the bar and at the Greys events for introducing the new peoples, they have a wellness meeting. How important do you think it is to kind of reaffirm these early stages of kind of taking care of yourself? Yes, I think that's definitely important. And I say that as a barrister who this week has found themselves in a situation where I, I feel under the weather. I've got a cold or a flu or possibly even COVID working on me. I'm not sure what it is, but you've got cases in your diary. And unless you're not fit to represent your client to the best of their interests, then you've got to show up and you've got to be there. You've got to be prepared. And there's there's a sort of saying that is often mentioned. You'll, you'll, you'll hear barristers say it. We can't really have off days. We're not really allowed to have bad days because for each of our clients on each day that we work, it is possibly the biggest day of their life. And I often try and remember that because it's a Monday and Monday or a Monday and Friday for us. But for the client, it's possibly the only time that they've been in court. There are enormous aspects of their private and family life at stake and you've got to be on the ball so that is pressure uh, and that means that this is a stressful job I don't think that any barrister would tell you that their job isn't stressful and particularly in terms of family law everything is relatively urgent if not very urgent we don't tend to get papers very far in advance of a hearing because the nature of this work is that things change and things change quickly and often at the last minute. And that means that well-being can go on the back burner for a few weeks in the in a, in a run. If you just happen to get a run of tricky cases, a run of tricky clients or a, a run of cases that present issues that mean you're, you're sort of up late prepping and everything feels last minute. And that can take its toll on your well-being, I think. And it's important to build in uh, bricks into your diary. That's something I've learned very quickly over the past few weeks in particular, now that I've got a lot more control of my own diary as a tenant, that I am responsible for making sure that I keep an eye on the work going in and make sure that I block out time where I think I'll need it to be able to recharge and reset. And it's about having stamina and, you know, it's not a sprint. You've got to have endurance to, to keep going case after case and um, 
to try and avoid burnout, which I think a lot of people, this word burnout has obviously come to the fore, particularly during COVID. And it's quite a millennial word that people use in terms of a a corporate sense. But I think at the bar, it's a very real problem. And um, we've got to do everything we can to avoid that. But the very bottom line is that you can do everything within your power to avoid it. But it, there's just a, a, a large amount that has to be accepted as part and parcel of, of this work. And often we can't predict how our diary is going to be, um, what's going to happen, what's going to go wrong. We just have to deal with it and respond to it when it does. And that's why I think trying to look ahead and build in those sort of preemptive few days where you're thinking, I think by the time I get to that day, I'm going to need a bit of a rest. I think that's what I personally do just to try and uh, give myself an allowance for for a few down days as opposed to being on the go all the time. Definitely. I think there's a tendency of barristers and law students to kind of think we can do it all, we can do all the extracurriculars, the meeting, the mini pupillages. But as I've been doing these exams these past two weeks, some of my friends have been kind of saying, don't forget burnout's a thing and kind of take your time. So I think it is so important at all stages, but especially as as you get tenancy and I guess it is in your own power completely you don't have terms anymore you don't have someone saying after exams you can take a break um, to incorporate that into your own timetable are there any top tips you can kind of offer us of things that you wish you'd known before you started tenancy maybe when applying for pupillage if you could give your former self some advice I think Something that really struck me when I was a pupil and that I will remember and pass on to to those who ask is that people want you to do well. I, I don't think that people in chambers want you to do badly. I don't think that they negatively mark you, that you start off on 100% and they're looking for things to take marks off of you. That's not the case. I find this particular profession to be so supportive of those coming into it so supportive of those trying to develop and progress their careers that very senior members of the bar will take time out of their day time out of their evenings time out of their early mornings early hours of the morning when needs be when when duty calls to be there to provide support and and advice and assistance and that means an awful lot in terms of building your confidence and making you feel as though not only that you belong in this profession but that you can you can do well so we often feel as though we've got to prove ourselves and throughout our degrees and the the vocational training for the bar we are working off an exam-based system whereby we have to go in and, and make ourselves look good on paper. And when you get to pupillage, that's very different because you're being assessed as the person that you are and what you can bring to chambers as a person and as a barrister. And I just think that that stands out to me as one of the the, the big factors that I was shocked by, which is, hold on a second, everybody is rooting for me you know everybody wants me to do well and I, I just find that across the board I, I really did I don't think that I came across a single barrister during my entire pupillage who made me feel as though they were trying to find reasons why I wouldn't succeed all of them were trying to find reasons why I would and I think that's a very positive thing to remember and to hold on to when when times get tough as they will inevitably do uh, when you're in the middle of it all Definitely. I think that's a complete mindset change that 
you have to kind of go through is particularly at the moment it does seem like every exam is trying to trip you trip you up almost but it, I guess that's a nice thing to know that people are kind of rooting for you um, and not just looking at the the CV and the paper but kind of wanting to get to know you and how you're going to to be with clients and kind of just working generally um, so that's very interesting to hear and I did do a LinkedIn stalk <laughs> of you before I wrote, wrote up for today. And you've worked for different charities. Um, you worked as a paralegal. Do you think it's important to get these different types of experience, not only for the CV, but kind of so that you know what you want to do before you, you get tenancy? I think so. I don't think any experience is negative experience. You know, anything in life that um, challenges you or, or puts you outside of your comfort zone is, uh, I think, going to benefit you in the long run. I, I didn't necessarily get that experience because I wanted to. I got that experience because the ways in which the process works to become a barrister mean that you tend to end up with a gap of one year if not more between bar school and pupillage if you are successful at obtaining pupillage before you start bar school then you may not have that gap of a year in between but typically most people end up with one if not more years spare and you can go traveling you can go off and do whatever you want during that year but I decided that I was going to stay living in London having just moved from Northern Ireland to London to study at at bar school and that necessarily meant that I had to get a job in order to fund that and the sensible thing to me seemed to be to get a paralegaling job because it would give me some insight and experience into being a lawyer but that was when I had already got my pupillage offer so I didn't have that experience prior to obtaining my pupillage offer and therefore I can say with certainty that experience like that is not necessary on a pupillage application form but I think certainly that it did uh, provide me with great experience that help, has helped me at the bar from a very particularly procedural aspect in terms of preparing applications for court that's something that I don't do anymore as a barrister that's uh, that's what a solicitor does but it helps me to make sense of bundles very quickly now that I've had experience of being on both sides and um, when I do get papers for for a case and Another thing that I found that particular work helped me with was client handle and dealing with stressful situations and clients who are often very stressed out, uh, in despair at their situation, perhaps on the telephone and when you're taking statements from them, when you're preparing documents on their behalf. And that's all helped me enormously, I think, in, in terms of my client handling skills now. Um, as a barrister so certainly they have assisted uh, but I think that any experience in any form of work will provide you with cross um, cross transferable skills that will will help you for for example something that probably didn't make my LinkedIn although looking back I don't know why I didn't put it up there because now that I've got tenancy I, I think looking back this particular job helped me a lot. I, I worked for many years um, as a student in Tesco uh, on the checkouts and stacking shelves. And then I finished off working at Tesco in their dot-com department, picking groceries for online shoppers. And that's probably the job that I've learned the most from 
when I think about it in the round because I was young and I had to deal with studies and on top of my part-time job it was my first experience of earning my own money and what to do with that when you're young you know you've got to learn how to to manage your money and manage your time and you are working with people who are perhaps a lot older than you a very diverse workforce uh you've got your first experience of of dealing with a manager and the expectations on you from them and I think that experience is, is, if not more important, it's equally as important as my experience as a paralegal and a working graduate professional when I finished my studies. And I think if you've got experience like that, be sure to make known the, the things that you've learned from it, because it's, it's all it's all about the package that you bring as a person as a whole, as opposed to ticking boxes. Definitely, that's reassuring to hear as someone who hasn't been able to do all the classic minis due to lockdown, um, but who has worked part-time jobs and has learned a lot from having to deal with, well, as a waitress, the customers who weren't always um, happy. Um, But I think you do learn a lot having that client focus um, and it is important to kind of remember that when you're doing these applications. I made the mistake of taking the advice of looking up some of the recent tenants which is a great idea until, as you say, a lot of people did experience after they got pupillage in that year gap. So you're kind of sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, how do they get to do so much um, for such a significant amount of time? And it's because they had a year or so after the bar course where they had the time. But just kind of to finish up, I think for a lot of law students, we see making tenancy as kind of the end, as the end goal. But what's next for you? What are you looking forward to getting to do, expanding your practice or specialising um, or, or what's next? That's, I think that's a really good question because I had sort of experienced for uh, definitely in the first few days of my tenancy and, and over the past few weeks, that feeling that I often used to get when I finished exams where there's sort of a bit of a it feels slightly anticlimactic in terms of you've worked really, really hard to get to this point and well, now you're here. So, well, now what do you do? And I certainly feel as though that's a question that I've been asking myself because the doors have opened up in the sense that I've now become a tenant and the security that that provides means that I can look to other aspects of my life, other things that I might have enjoyed when I was at university or when I was training that I didn't necessarily get to explore because I didn't have the time or or whatever it may have been. And now that I do have the opportunity to think about those things, I'm very excited about exploring what 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 else might be out there to just sort of allow me to fill time outside of work and explore other interests that I have. So that's definitely something that I'm interested in. And then of course the, your career at the bar doesn't stop with tenancy. You can aim to be a QC. You can want to be a judge. Some people go back to university to teach and lecture. Lots of the tutors on the bar course are practitioners and who have actively practiced as barristers recently, if not are continuing to do so. Some people become part-time judges so that they continue both practice at the bar and work at the judiciary. There are lots of options, lots and lots of things that you can do uh, that aren't and don't involve a a five day a week standard private practice um, caseload. So 
I'm very early on. I'm very early days, but all of that is floating around in my head and hopefully over time uh, something will stand out uh, as what I want to do next. But for the time being, and certainly in the short term, I intend to try and keep my diary as busy as possible. Uh, I'm in the very early days of my career and my practice and I've got to work hard to build that and to continue to build it over the next few years. And importantly for me, I think I need to find what it is that I want to specialise in within family law obviously family law in and of itself is a speciality but then you've got lots of specialisms within that particular area and specializing is something that I do hope to do although I'm not quite sure yet in what area exactly I I want to specialize so that's something that I want to explore in my own practice and with my clerks in chambers over the next few years and uh, who knows what what will happen but certainly it's a great feeling to get the security of tenancy and it's a great feeling to sort of feel as if right well you know I'm here after all these years and uh, what what will happen next I, I don't know but certainly it feels as though there are lots of options. That sounds like there's a million, million opportunities at your door and it's going to be so exciting to, well, hopefully we'll talk to you again um, soon, but whatever you end up doing, um, it's going to be exciting to kind of hopefully keep talking to you as you go on that journey. And I don't think I actually said at the beginning, but congratulations on tenancy. That's an amazing um, achievement and you must be so relieved that you're kind of onto the next thing now, as you said, and get to consider all the millions of opportunities that you have. Um, but thank you so, so much for coming back onto the podcast and giving us an update on where you are. It's really lovely to kind of, as I, I think yours was the first podcast I listened to when I knew I got the position to kind of listen in to, to understand what I'd be doing. So it's kind of a strange experience to actually be talking to you. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm just really delighted that, you know, my original idea a few years ago has uh, developed into what is, you know, a very successful podcast now in, in the hands of Aegis and um, yourself and Nia as, as hosts. So I'm so pleased and thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, Check us out on Twitter at AGI Students.